This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Okay, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, Today, we're doing our second podcast on vascular trauma um, from the Riches uh, Vascular Trauma textbook. Um, And we're here with Alexis and Alec, uh, and they're taking us through, uh, you know, the the principles of vascular trauma management. So today, we're going to focus on the neck, upper extremity, and chest injuries. And and we're going to just start from the highest and go to the lowest. So we're going to start with neck injuries. What are you thinking about when a patient rolls in with a penetrating neck injury? So first I want to assess what zone the injury is in. So just to quickly review those, uh, zone one is the sternal notch to the cricoid cartilage. Zone two is the cricoid cartilage to the angle of the mandible. And zone three is the angle of the mandible to the base of the skull. I remember these as they increase as you go up the neck. Um, So previously management was dictated by zone, but now it's really more so by patient status. Yeah, the, the zones are still important for communicating um, a, where your injury is, but B, um, thinking about what structures could be impacted um, based on the, the location of those injuries. Yeah, definitely. And so, so next I'd assess the patient, again, looking for any of those hard or soft signs of vascular injury that we discussed in podcast one. If there are any hard signs and the patient is unstable, that mandates going to the operating room for exploration. If the patient's stable, I would then likely order a CTA of the neck to get further evaluation. Absolutely. And uh, another important step here is identifying any neurologic deficits when you have a patient with a, with a neck injury, whether it's uh, from a carotid injury or something else. So you're going to the OR. Um, how are you going to prepare for managing an injury to zone one? So these are the, the most proximal injuries, like we said, again, sternal ash to cricocartilage. Um, these can be managed um, with an open approach if it's um, distal enough. However, a median sternotomy may be needed um, to get adequate proximal control. Um, you can also consider endovascular management with covered stents um, if your resources are available. Um, but I think for the scope of this podcast, we can um, hold off on discussing the nuances of endovascular management for these patients. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, endovascular management of subclavian and axillary artery injuries is uh, really uh, advanced and uh, and much less morbid than thoracotomies or sternotomies. Uh, so certainly keep that in mind if you're at a place that has access to that. Um, so let's, now let's walk through the operative approach to a zone two injury. All right. So this is a fun one. So like any trauma prep widely, you want to include the entire neck, both sides, the chest in case you need to do a sternotomy and the bilateral groins or thighs, because you want to have the ability to get access and potentially do vein harvest. The surgical approach is then otherwise very similar to a carotid endorectomy. So you're going to do an incision anterior to the sternocloid and mastoid, identify and divide both the omohyoid and the facial vein. And then once you have the internal carotid exposed, you'll gain your proximal distal control and repair kind of with those principles we've discussed earlier. You may also want to consider a shunt to maintain flow while you're doing your repair. 
Yeah, it's interesting. These patients are different patients than our uh, patients that have atherosclerotic disease um, and not to get into the nuances here, but you know, they're probably not going to tolerate a clamp on the, the vessel as well as a patient that has a 90% stenosis um, that's been developing collaterals for years. Um, so maintaining flow if possible, I think is, is very important to remember. And so what are your options for repair? Um, so for very small defects, you can consider a primary repair with a proline, um, very rarely done um, just due to risk of causing stenosis. Um, patch angioplasty, oh, excuse me, patch angioplasty um, with either a bovine pericardium or vein graft um, sewn in with proline is um, more commonly used. And then for larger defects, consideration of a interposition graft um, with saphenous vein or other conduit, um, such as PTFE or something, whatever you have available. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and these patients generally have dirty wounds. So uh, using their own autogenous tissue is the best choice if possible. Um, but, you know, sometimes uh, you may have to go with a, with a graft uh, in, in some scenarios. So how about zone three injuries? Uh, what are the keys to management in this tough location? Yeah, so these are, again, injuries that are distal to the angle of the mandible. So they're more likely going to be managed endovascularly because of the challenges with surgical access. But that being said, if you're in a situation where you're performing an open repair of a zone three injury, um, maybe it's a more proximal injury, you can use a Fogarty balloon for distal control. That's a nice trick. Um, and it's also a potentially useful trick for a distal zone two injury. But again, largely for zone three, you're going to be hoping that you have endovascular resources available. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a really tough place to operate. I uh, definitely can review some of the tips for kind of high carotid lesions uh, uh, for tips on exposure there, but we'll, we won't dive into that here. Um, so let's say you have a patient who presents following a high-speed uh, motor vehicle crash and has facial fractures and is now complaining of neck pain. Uh, thinking of vascular injuries in the neck, what would you be worried about? And you know what would you do based on the injuries that you, you see? Yeah, this should definitely be making you think about some sort of blunt injury to your vertebral carotid. Given the mechanism, mechanism and associated injuries, um, I'd want to get a CTA at the neck um, to be screening for this type of injury in this patient. Yeah, so definitely uh, high-speed MVC with neck pain definitely requires a CTA because uh, you know a carotid or vertebral dissection can be devastating. So outside of this scenario, what specific injuries would lead you to consider a screening CTA? So the kind of list of injuries to think about CTA in is, is those high-risk injuries, so severe head injury, a cervical extension or flexion injuries, the four, two or three facial fractures, basal or skull fractures that involve the carotid canal. Great. And the CTA will give you a grade of injury if one is present. Let's briefly review these. Your grade one injury is an interval injury with less than 25% luminal narrowing. Grade two, dissection or a hematoma with greater than 25% luminal narrowing. Grade three is pseudoaneurysm. Grade four, um, an occlusion. And then all the way up to grade five being a transection. Great. And, uh, you know, most importantly, how are these different uh, grades managed? So in general, and I say that with emphasis because it's really generalized and most um, locations have protocols based on grading. Um, so grades one to four can be managed non-operatively with antithrombotic therapy and grade five, a transection would require an operative intervention. Vertebral artery injuries, on the other hand, are difficult to access and most likely need endovascular approaches or a ligation or embolization. 
um, but be aware of the risk of posterior circulation stroke in that setting. And another part of the management here is their follow-up. So a CTA should be repeated in about seven to 10 days after injury for those managed non-operatively um, and anti-thrombotic therapy discontinued if that lesion has resolved at that point. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that these things can be managed non-operatively, assuming there's no neurologic deficits. Um, if you have a dissection and they have you know, a stroke on that side um, or a pseudoaneurysm and a stroke, that, that's a much more urgent situation. Many of these patients are going to be multi-injured patients. Um, so we really just want to get an antiplatelet on board um, for these patients um, and then, you know, treat, you know, follow-up imaging, plus or minus treatment. Generally, a pseudoaneurysm, in, in my experience, uh, probably at some point is going to need uh, some sort of treatment. Um, but many times that can be delayed as they have many significant injuries going on if they're asymptomatic. And so what other uh, are key points for residents to be aware of? Uh, so we won't get too in the weeds here, but just to note, especially for zone two penetrating injuries, you want to consider evaluating the other closely related anatomic structures here. So that's where you may hear of the triple scope. And, and so you can evaluate both the esophagus and the trachea um, in addition to the neck. Yeah, absolutely. Very critical. You can uh, save their life, but then have a... Uh, esophagus injuries is not going to do them very well. So let's, uh, let's move on. So we've kind of covered uh, the carotid and vertebrals. Let's quickly just dive into how we access these injuries to treat them uh, should they be found. So I'm just going to name them and I want you guys to tell me the surgical approach to them. So a right proximal subclavian artery injury. So that's going to be a median sternotomy. You can do a supraclavicular extension and resect the clavicular head if you need additional exposure. Absolutely. And then the dreaded left proximal subclavian artery injury. So um, consider an anterior lateral thoracotomy here. Um, you can extend to a clamshell or with a median sternotomy um, and or consider supraclavicular um, incision um, for this injury. Yeah, I think it's important just quickly for the residents to know that the, the aorta goes posterior and this proximal subclavian artery really comes off um, in a posterior location. So the median sternotomy is not going to get you there. Um, and so that's why the anterior lateral thoracotomy is the better uh, choice for this injury. And it's really just a, a challenging injury. Um, so how about the mid to distal subclavian artery or proximal axillary artery? So here you can use a supraclavicular incision. You'll divide the sternocleidomastoid and the anterior scalene that'll get you to the, the proximal axillary or the mid-distal subclavian. Again, you can add a clavicular resection or add an infraclavicular incision if you need better exposure. Definitely. And then how about a distal axillary? Uh, lateral infraclavicular incision for this, splitting your pack major and dividing your pack minor. Okay, great. And then how about a mid to distal brachial artery injury? So this would be an incision in the medial arm in the bicipital groove. You want to extend that over the antiputable crease if it's a distal brachial and you need uh, better distal control. And then uh, what about if you're dealing with some ulnar or radial artery injuries? Um, those are going to be longitudinal forearm incisions um, directly overlying. Great. Yeah. Use ultrasound, help identify where they are and, and make your incision. So let's say EMS calls you and they're bringing a patient with a stab wound to the upper extremity and the patient is having significant hemorrhage. Are there any vessels that can be ligated without significant risk? So I'll start from the best to the worst tolerated. If you have a single forearm injury, so the ulnar or the radial itself with good flow to the palmar arch, and you can verify that with a Doppler, then you can ligate the one injured vessel. 
um, that's well tolerated. If you ligate um, the axillary or the subclavian arteries that may be tolerated without limb loss due to significant, significant collaterals in the upper arm, but functional impairment can occur. So you want to consider shunting or repair in those scenarios. And you certainly want to avoid brachial artery ligation as the sequelae of that are likely to be pretty significant. Um, and like we said before, uh, covered stents may be useful for subclavian injuries, um, but um, need to be cognizant of not covering any sort of dominant vertebral artery. Yeah, that is sort of the, the key to the subclavians is those vertebral arteries and where the, the location of the injuries are. And as many of you know, in vascular, we, we cover the subclavian artery frequently, um, as we'll talk about in a little bit here. And generally, the patients do okay. Um, but that's because their vertebral artery still is getting uh, flow. So let's wrap up uh, the extremity, the upper extremity with some final high yield thoughts. So as always, prep widely so that you can consider all approaches. You want to um, prep the chest in case you might need more proximal control with the median sternotomy. Prep the lower legs in case you need to do a vein harvest. And specific to the upper extremities, include the hand and the forearm into your prep so that you can do intraoperative interrogation with Doppler for pulse exams. Yeah, speaking about the hand, um, definitely not considering forearm and hand fasciotomies if compartment syndrome is suspected or if you have a long ischemia time for these patients. And, and for the upper extremity, open approaches are likely the best, particularly for the brachial artery and distally. But for junctional injuries, we would strongly recommend an endovascular approach. Um, and I, th I think the final thing to consider for high yield tips is being aware um, of location of critical structures that run through these areas, um, especially the brachial plexus, phrenic nerves, things. I know this is not um, an area that a lot of um, general surgery residents are as comfortable in. So being very careful in these areas with the brachial plexus, especially as intertwined as that is um, to the subclavian. Yeah. Yeah. The brachial, or the brachial plexus is always uh, causing problems. Uh, I thought I was done with it when I became a uh, vascular surgeon and, and then it's popping back up again in my life. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh yeah. That's me. Nothing extra. Just perfection and a straw coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So let's dive into blunt thoracic aortic injuries. Um, so assuming a patient makes it to the hospital, as we know many of them don't, uh, how do you diagnose and initially manage these? So diagnosis is best done with a CTA. You'll usually locate the injury distal to the origin of the left subclavian. Once your diagnosis is made, the, really the priority is managing heart rate and blood pressure. You want to start a rapid-acting beta blocker, most commonly Esmolol, because it's a very quick on and off, and have as a goal systolic blood pressure of less than 120, if that can be tolerated in that particular patient. Definitely. Yeah, this is the key to this. These patients are almost always multi-injured, have many other problems going on. Getting good blood pressure control, uh, impulse control is what's going to save their life initially, assuming it's not, you know, near ruptured. Um, so your patient is stable on esmolol drip and your CTA showed a pseudo aneurysm just distal to the subclavian artery takeoff. How do you approach the treatment to this? 
Um, so this is um, really looking at an endos, uh, endovascular management. Um, doing a, a TVAR would be the preferred approach. Um, within a limited resource area, if you need to operate, um, you can consider an open approach, which would be via left posterior lateral thoracotomy, um, doing a clamp and sew approach. Um, that being said, that's a very big surgery. Um, and so you consider you can consider transferring to a center to endovascularly manage that patient. Depending yeah, on yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the these patients do fine up to a week after the injury if they have good uh, impulse control, um, even with a pseudo aneurysm. Um, so getting them to a place that can perform an endovascular repair. Um, is definitely the gold standard and definitely should be performed. So what are some considerations when performing a TVAR? Yeah, so appropriate stent sizing is important. You also want to consider whether or not the left subclavian is covered, as we discussed above. Um, This is tolerated in most patients. However, if needed, the carotid subclavian bypass can be performed if they develop steel. Um, yeah, another thing to make sure uh, patients are aware of is that uh, lifelong surveillance is required um, for these patients, um, especially um, if they have any stent-related complications. So um, given the resident level, we're so involved in discharging patients and making sure follow-ups are completed. So uh, making sure that patients are aware that they really need to be on top of seeing a vascular surgeon regularly for this. Yeah, much uh, more detailed conversation on this in a a previous podcast with Dr. Rasmussen. I highly recommend people go listen to. And the one thing I'd add to this, the considerations for TVAR is intravascular ultrasound is critical. It helps you uh, measure the size of the aorta and and locate the injury tear um, in treatment. So um, intravascular ultrasound really is a uh, standard of care with this. Um, Great. So we kind of covered the blunt aortic injury impulse control and TVAR when, when able. Um, so let's dive into some of the, uh, the last parts of this episode here, the cardiac great vessels and pulmonary injuries. Let's say you have a patient rolling in with an injury to the box. Describe what that means and what you're concerned for. So the box is described as the location between the nipples from the sternal notch to the xiphoid process. And the injury here really raises your concern for injury to the heart. Right. So the patient rolls in and you immediately notice JVD as well as low blood pressures, what are you worried about? And following the C ABCs, what do you want to do um, to evaluate this? Um, so I'd be concerned in this patient for cardiac tamponade, given the injury location and presentation. Um, you know, if you have ultrasound capability, considering a, a very quick EFAS to look at the heart and seeing um, if there's um, pericard- uh, fluid within the pericardial sac. So as you go to grab the ultrasound, the patient uh, suddenly loses pulses. Now what? That's what you get for walking away from your patient. So uh, you've got this penetrating injury with loss of pulses in the ER. I would first, I would go to the ER thoracotomy or the left anterior lateral thoracotomy at this point. Um, So that's an incision between the fourth and the fifth ribs. And once you're in the chest, you pack, you check the pericardium. And if evidence of tamponade, perform a longitudinal pericardiotomy staying anterior to the phrenic nerve. Following that, you deliver the heart, and that will allow for cardiac massage. So then after that, um, you'll want to um, clamp the descending thoracic aorta. Um, So you want to make sure you're retracting lung superiorly, identifying your aorta. Um, You'll be incising the pleura over the thoracic spine. 
and then um, placing your clamp across the aorta there, um, being sure the clamp is fully around um, the aorta, um, and then you should see some improvement perfusion um, to the heart and brain. And a really important thing to note when cross clamping is to do everything in your power to avoid injuring the intercostals because um, they come off aorta posteriorly and it's they're injured and you get reperfusion um, to that, those vessels. You can have a really hard time fixing that problem. Um, and then as far as the exposure in that area, you may need to divide the inferior pulmonary ligament, ligament um, to get the lung up and out of the way. Um, so keep that in the, in the back of your mind here. Yeah, great. Well, you guys made a great save there and the patient regains pulses and you get to the <laughs> OR. You now notice there's a small injury to the left ventricle. What are some of the principles of uh, repairing an injury to the ventricle? Again, in general, for the left ventricle or the higher pressure system, I want to perform a plegative repair with a mo permanent monofilament. So that's usually a 2-0 or a 3-0 proline. And that's either with mattress or running suture, depending on the injury size. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, what can you use for a pledget um, if you uh, don't have, you know, official pledgets on your, your, your scrub tech says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. So something to consider is using the pericardium. It's right there. Um, you've already had to open it um, to get it, you know, to get visualization of the heart. So taking a, a chunk of that to use as a pledget is, um, is pretty quick and easy. Yeah, absolutely. And a pledget just distributes the kind of tension of the suture across a wider area. So it doesn't pull through the muscle um, for the listeners out there that aren't quite familiar with pledget, but very, very helpful in cardiac injuries and sometimes friable vascular injuries. Um, so definitely. So how about injuries to the atria right ventricle? Uh, for the atria, um, I clamp the injury um, and then um, start a uh, running or interrupted suture depending on the the size of your injury. Uh, same thing with the with the proline. Um, be uh, careful here, given the thinner walls of the um, the atria um, when when you're sewing. And then for the right ventricle, the repair is pretty similar to the left ventricle, so two or two or three o proline with the mattress or running. But depending on how the heart holds the suture, you may not need a pledget here. Um, and then something that may um, seem obvious, but it's worth stating, especially in the heat of a moment with such a, a big injury, is being cognizant of the location of the, the coronary vessels as you're repairing these. Um, you definitely want to avoid accidental ligation here. So um, considering a U-stitch um, to keeping, uh, keeping your repair out of the way of the coronary is uh, very important. Yeah, and I think the only thing I'd add to that is just the conceptualization of that. It might not make sense. The U-stitch, uh, you're basically, you know, repairing the ventricle, but kind of going under where the coronary arteries would be. So you're not, you know, uh, tying off the coronary artery, uh, which would be devastating. So um, definitely kind of Google that and see kind of the U-stitch to sort of get a better visualization of that. But definitely a critical point um, should you be in this situation. So... Um, Good. And following a cardiac repair, be sure to get up, be sure to get a post-op echo to rule out any valvular injury and assess the function um, once they've had an injury such as this. So as we wrap up here, let's uh, change the scenario. Let's say you're doing a resuscitative thoracotomy instead of tamponade, you see a major lung hemorrhage. What can you do in this situation? So this can be temporized with hyalur clamping or a lung twist. Uh, to do that, note you have to have already mobilized that inferior pulmonary ligament that Alc was talking about. You can also consider in a real damage control scenario, just packing the chest to get you to the OR. Absolutely. So you're in the OR. Briefly, what are some techniques for managing uh, pulmonary injuries? 
Um, so for these, uh, depending on the location, especially it's in the periphery, um, you can perform a stapled wedge resection. Um, if it's more centrally located, you can do a tractotomy. Um, and what this is, is basically placing one half of your stapler through um, the trajectory of the of the injury and then the other half on the outside of the lung parenchyma. And then by firing that stapler, it opens the lung and then you can see what's bleeding, performing, you know, suture ligations um, as needed. Any other larger, um, you know, repair of the lung, I think we'll be getting a little bit outside of the scope of, of this kind of podcast. Yeah, definitely. So uh, with the lung injuries, the bleeding, you have your options of the tractotomy, the stapled wedge resection, or, or the suture repair. You can also, you know, get a clamp around the, the pulmonary hilum. Um, as you're calling for help, basically, um, to get some extra hands in there and have and have hemostasis uh, while you're waiting for that. So this wraps up podcast two of three. Today, we reviewed the management of the neck, the upper extremity, and thoracic injuries. And next week, we are going to be quite busy as we cover the aorta, IVC, and visceral vessels and lower extremity injuries. So uh, thanks, Alec and Alexis, for helping us out with this today. Until next time, dominate the day.